Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Lots changed since I was a kid. I take a deep sigh. Back in the day, we used to do a lot of different things than kids today do, probably simply because there's lesser opportunities to do some of the things that kids do today. But one of the things I can remember is, is that we used to just love to go outside and run around and do all kinds of crazy things. I don't know that we, we I grew up, my family, uh, my sister and I, uh, grew up in a more rural area than anybody else, although there was a, obviously cities back then. <laughs> and we did live somewhat in one of the smaller ones, but it was just different. Uh, there weren't, again, as many options, and so we spent most of our time with the other kids in the neighborhood, and back then houses were pretty small, and <laughs> you didn't have really sometimes even rooms that were your own, and you had to have common space or share common space with most all your family members, and depending how large your family might be, uh, outside, <laughs> being out of the house was possibly one of the safest places if you, safe meant to get away from intrusion or others invading your personal space or even to give you space <laughs> and just to yourself. So we'd spend most of our time outside. We'd be playing again with the other children in the neighborhood and all kinds of games and exploring and bike riding was huge, etc., etc. And because, at least retrospectively, it seems this way, we were having so much fun when it came time to come home, uh, we often missed it, <laughs> the time that is. Uh, we'd eventually make it home, but generally it'd be either later that we should have been home and usually would have required our parents, mom or dad, sometimes both, depending on where we were and how hard it was to find us. They'd have to come out and yell a bit, maybe even come look for us. Team approach, both of them. Usually one did the job, though. But I can remember dinner was always that way, and especially when we weren't in school, or maybe not so much. I mean, I guess it was also when we were in school. It just seemed like when, when we were out of school, holidays, or over the summer, uh, the minute it broke daylight, you were out, and you just didn't want to come home. going to use up every moment <laughs> just being out there, doing things. But whether it was, generally speaking, the summer, holidays, even maybe when school was in session, we'd miss dinner. If it was summer, we'd miss lunch probably as well. Lunch wasn't so important because I suppose my mom, who was principally at home with us at the time, thought that starvation <laughs> it would take a while uh, to set in and that at least if we had one good meal outside of our breakfast cereal in the mornings uh, then we'd probably end up surviving to the next day but dinner was important and usually at that point because my dad didn't seem to get to take much in the way of holidays or over summer he was always uh, just as busy one day to the next as he would be any other time of the year Working, he'd end up coming home about 4.30, 5 o'clock, 
and dinner was on. <laughs> and back then, parents seemed to be, and once again, this is all in my memory, so it may be, it certainly is phenomenological subjective, but I think culturally it was this way. I haven't necessarily done any sort of research to go back and pull up archives or anything like that, but they loved to talk to their kids. How was your day? What were you doing? What did you do today? How did you spend it? Did you ride your bike? What went on? And of course there was an evening ritual that kind of went along with that after dinner and the parents would want us to be a part of that as well. But that's the point of the story. <laughs> we were too busy being out and doing the things that we wanted to do. And there was a lot of agency and independence that went with that, which was also, once you discovered the freedom, you didn't want to forfeit that too easily. Actually, the worst thing a parent could do was ground you. Maybe still today, but certainly back then, it was just as powerful. <laughs> but you wanted to be grounded, especially, again, if it meant you had to stay in your room and then share the rest of the house with everybody else. You wanted to be out, either alone or with your friends. But we missed many dinners. They had to come look for us many times, many occasions. We didn't have dinner bells, but man, my mom and dad, woman, man, woman, my mom and dad could yell. And uh, we could hear them. But as much as they'd get us to come in for dinner, it was also really difficult to keep us there. <laughs> we'd rush in. We'd all sit down. That Back then, we'd do the dinner table thing. Dinner would be served. It'd be fairly warm. It was a big challenge to keep it all warm so that everybody could eat a hot meal, as they say, at the same time. But we'd rush through it. Why? Because they were waiting for us out there. Who were they? Again, our friends. The adventures, the great adventures that either we'd gotten into and were maybe in the middle of when dinner so rudely interrupted or just getting out and finding out what dusk, uh, twilight, sunset would bring us in the way of adventure. Our friends, our world at that age was out there. It wasn't necessarily inside. It certainly wasn't on a computer because we didn't have any. It wasn't on a smartphone because we didn't have any. Uh, and maybe it was television, but then you only had two or three channels. So as you, and then the other alternative would have been to read, which, you know, kids aren't necessarily glad to do that, at least not at those younger ages. But we'd get up and run. The minute dinner was over with, and my mom would always yell, don't run away so fast. Give your dinner a chance to settle. Give your food a chance to digest or be digested. And I think, again, she just wanted us to hang out a little bit longer and maybe wanted to chat a bit more since those times seemed to be rare then and even more so looking back on it, nostalgic. Uh, those times go too fast. But the article today, <laughs> today's podcast, has something to do with all those things, believe it or not. Take a breather. Psychology Today, August of 2022. The author is Hal McDonald, PhD. Take a breather. More frequent sighing may boost our reading comprehension. 
Even in an increasingly digital age, many readers find that they take in more information when reading a book than when reading a screen. New research finds that the way they breathe may help explain why. Participants read passages on a smartphone or from a book while researchers track respiratory patterns and brain activity. As expected, smartphone users scored worse on a comprehension test than those who read books. Prefrontal activity increased during reading in both media. However, overactivity in the prefrontal cortex was seen in the smartphone group. Breathing became shallower for all participants, but those who read books took more frequent deep breaths, often in the form of sighing. Sighing is tied to improved executive function and may reduce cognitive load on the prefrontal cortex, the authors note. They speculate that blue light from screens inhibits side generation, hindering the brain's ability to comprehend what's being read. Avoiding screens altogether may not be possible, but deliberately focusing on one's breath when reading could boost comprehension regardless of medium, notes study author Motoyasu Hanma, a professor at Tokyo's Showa University. A breath doesn't have to be a sigh in order to be effective, he says. It just has to be deep. Again, take a breather. Hal McDonald, PhD, Psychology Today, August of 2022. More frequent sighing may boost our reading comprehension. Now again, a lot of differences between then and now, as I've tried to capture in my mind's eye. All those memories. But obviously, technology is much different. And within that context of technology, then the opportunities have been expanded. Pretty simple premise. <laughs> Once you could go to a computer and certainly do a lot of stuff on a computer and create your own world on a computer, that was one thing you couldn't do. You could do it in fantasy but you couldn't get so much disconnected from reality because there was always dinner calls. <laughs> there was always lunch. There was always darkness. <laughs> you couldn't stay out after dark. But once computers then became connected, and maybe initially it was just through a common variable or common sort of experience of certain software or games or experiences, once it became then connected even more so via the World Wide Web, you could literally then not only experience something that everybody else was experiencing, and that's not a new phenomenon. There's always been those iconic movies or when there was only three channels on television, then you had fewer choices, and so everybody had to pick. And there was a good chance, I don't know if it's like 33% if you divided that equally, but there was a good chance that you're going to be talking to somebody that saw something that you saw, unless it was just like terrible. Or the other thing that all of us saw was so great, it was a phenomenon, an event. Music was the same way. So it's not that that necessarily is any different, but this idea or notion of persons being connected 
in some sort of technological way to one another and allowed then a communication, as we call it nowadays, things in that same spirit would go viral. We didn't have that. It'd take at least a few days, uh, maybe even a few weeks, maybe even a few months for the hottest trend to make its way to, again, my relatively small town. And we did have cities back then. So today we're connected in so many ways and the opportunities are so great and seemingly every day continuing to expand. I don't know that people really have the time (laughs) or inclination to do what we did. Uh, Things come much faster. There's, again, not only many more opportunities, but if you want to experience them all, you might spend less time on any one singularly. And as much any of those experiences would have, again, variables or data or input of some sort experientially, our senses would take it in. The experiences themselves could be many and multiplied. What you might be able to do in an hour might take you moments, minutes, moments today because it's just accelerated. Availability accelerates, processing in that way accelerates, connecting in that way accelerates. But that's the point. The human apparatus isn't a computer. (laughs) So if things don't get in, or if they're not taken in and, and in that same sort of way processed as fast, there's many things that we might see, might experience, some of which might catch some degree of attention or awareness, uh, there may still be certainly a need to filter, but we're, there's no way in the world we're going to keep up with a computer. <laughs> there's no way in the world. Or we're going to be able to take it all in. There's no way in the world. <laughs> and to be able to recall it, such as I recalled my childhood, there's no way in the world. There's just way too much of it. That could be good. That could be bad. For those folks that maybe are more inclined to want to live in the moment, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. But for those individuals that want to know what the moment was all about or want to seek something a little bit deeper or maybe understand it or make it relatable, relative to them, relatable to them in some sort of more sophisticated or a little bit more complex way in terms of either dimension or understanding again, comprehension, maybe that's bad. But basically, the operation system, human operation system, of taking data in and processing it in a brain sort of way, organically, has something to do, as the article points out, with the prefrontal lobe. Lobes, the cortex, the part of the brain that otherwise takes data in. Maybe it's registry, simply. That, maybe there's some preliminary data processing or maybe what I'm going to call superficial processing. Definitely there's data input. There has to probably be, again, some sort of sorting it out, figuring out how important it is and relevance. Again, relatability, significance. It's a relative to you. And in what sort of way? There's a lot of things that come at us that are novel and new, and we have to figure out if they're good or bad. It seems... Unfortunately, too basic, too simple, dichotomous thinking. But really, O's and ones, that's just how it goes. Is it good? Is it bad? And then we have to figure out 
react, how we're going to react. Figure out reactively so what we're going to do with it. Now, again, there's some processing, mental activity goes with it, but it's really not very deep thinking. It's really not very complex. And once more, there may be advantages or disadvantages inherent in that. Probably the greater advantage is until you're sure you might not want to get involved. You might want to be able to make a quick decision or if you're having to make somewhat quick decisions, have a model of decision making in place that allows you to at least avoid any imminent threat of danger and should something in an imminent way present itself as dangerous, then get away from it. At least give yourself time enough to think. But once again, that's a little bit of the problem, if maybe not the entirety of it. (laughs) How much data can you take in? And though really the real world (laughs) is is, uh, outside the house and running around and riding bikes and being with friends and almost forgetting you're hungry and (laughs) maybe being reminded you got to come home and you got to take a breather now and then, a break now and then. But it's all naturally, again, once more I'll use the word organically, sort of calibrated. Well, this new technology, especially when it includes computers and data processing and the speed of processing and the availability of data, we're just not wired that way. Will we get there? Maybe. (laughs) Do we have the capability capacity? Uh, Maybe. I don't know, but I just am confident of this. We're not there yet. Too fast, too much, no time to process. We've got got to digest our food. We've got to take a break. We've got to take a moment of repose. And though my story may be metaphorical, the story is true, but using it in a metaphorical sort of manner, my story was about recognizing you need to take breaks. You need to eat. <laughs> you need to, again, process the data, digest what's gone in or come in, uh, and certainly figure out what you're going to retain, what you're not going to retain. And should you happen to th- have a need to think about it a little bit more, to be a bit more than just reactive, a bit more than just sympathetic nervous system operations, <laughs> emotional thinking, uh, more than just... Uh, basically, and in that sort of real primary way, <laughs> primary drives, fulfillment of primary drives, reflexive, conditioned sort of responses or reactions, you need some time to think. And generally, if you're going to spend some time thinking, you need to somehow engage more than the prefrontal. <laughs> you need to engage the higher cognitive functions. The executive cognitive functions, as would include then, maybe more parasympathetic sort of operations, where we believe in a biochemical way there's a facilitation of pensive, problem-solving oriented, sorting out, refinement of data, abstract thinking, more formal operations. Piaget would have called all those things that might have been more superficial Uh, probably in some sort of a way, not only conditioned, but they do tend to become habits, habitual learning. Uh, Maybe the concrete operations. (laughs) I don't know. 
Uh, but when you start to think through things and you start to use imagination and you start to brainstorm and problem solve, you might want to limit input. You might want to get away somewhere where it's quiet. You may need to limit exposure. Um, and that's hard to imagine these days, only for children, kids, but adults. Adults aren't doing this. Maybe we finally got to the point in generations that they didn't acquire that. And I, I don't know that it's all learned. Again, that's what I was speaking to about concrete operations at PSA. We're naturally inclined to that, but we may also be inclined to override that if we're constantly taking in data and living in some sort of a biochemical or brain operational way that's very functional, <laughs> adaptive, but it becomes dysfunctional if we don't make that shift from relying upon only prefrontal activity to, again, a more complete, perfect, perfect, perfected kind of whole system operations that includes data processing at that more deeper level, more sophisticated level. So if I'm making any sense at all, if people don't learn to pace it, it may be like what my mom was saying. Let your food digest before you go out there and take in any more stuff. Uh, let your brain process what's happened. Now, generally speaking, sleep does that, and that is the essential element of not only parasympathetic operations or the essential, I think, movement, I'll put it that way, or purpose of parasympathetic, parasympathetic operations, which would be not only rest, not only sleep, but taking care of all the basic functions. But sleep, particularly in the stages of sleep, all of this is going on, but you sometimes need to do some of that during the day because you're only going to really be able to count on more of those automatic or maybe it's autonomic functions. I don't know. You don't, you don't hopefully have to necessarily think your way through the different stages of sleep, but you do have to sleep and you have to turn off some of the excitability. You can't be so excited or you can't change whatever, the set point, the thermostat, the homostatic response. You can't set it at such a high level of brain activity, again, leaning more toward the prefrontal, prefrontal, that you don't get a chance to rest and process at night. Shallow breathing, stimulation, excitability, all characteristic of being at that heightened state of arousal. Neuropronephrine adrenaline. Sympathetic nervous system operations. The smartphone in some ways feeds into the natural inclination to not only be excited, to be interested, but it, if you constantly feed it, if you don't turn it off, that smartphone experience, computer experience, worldwide web experience, however many different channels on YouTube, TikTok, or even should it be now a little archaic to think. Televisions, <laughs> satellite cable, whatever it is that you might be taking in, streaming channels, whatever it is that you might be taking in at any moment, you can just 
go from one to the next to the next to the next to the next. And that's how they feed it to you even. You don't even have to, to do any thinking. You just have to plug in and experience it. There's a bit of danger in that. There's, again, not much selectivity, not much awareness at some point. Or if there is, it gets lost. And though we're talking about inputting data to the extent of really actually processing it, and that's partly how we encode it or we take it into memory, and I'm going to try to get to, again, comprehension and learning. But some of it does creep in, and I guess repeated exposures is the same themes could in some ways be encoded. But it's still not complete. It's, as I use the word perfect, perfect, perfected, whole operational system processed, <laughs> sympathetic, parasympathetic, real basic sort of prefrontal and then executive cognitive functioning. All of that is really what goes into not only long-term memory consolidation, but also knowing where it's at, categorization, uh, adaptively drawing from it, <laughs> the details at times, it probably goes into as a basic component of identity. If you can't remember yesterday, you're not going to really know what you were, and that may change who you are today and certainly kind of starts to disrupt what you might be tomorrow. All of that comes together in that way that we form some repository or deposit of experiences that are there for that purpose, to help us, to be able to work through things, to know things in this manner that we're talking about today on the podcast, which really is learning, not just being conditioned, but includes a lot of opportunity to insert yourself into those memories or those experiences. And really, speaking of independence and autonomy and agency, those are the things that we were learning when we were kids. And my point is, I don't know how much of that's being either taught or experienced in present tense. Somebody will do a study and we'll be able to find out, but it'll be after the fact. And anything that's done after the fact means that we've missed an opportunity to consider it in some preventative way. And if it's bad, then we'll have to fix it. That's my point. But we learned that pretty early on. And how to figure out who we were and what we wanted to do and what was good about life. And in a basic sort of way. And then we made some modifications of that and took career choices and picked significant others and partners and decided what we wanted to do or commit our life to or what we wanted to head toward and what we wanted to stay away from and what was good for us and what was bad for us. And not only our own personal experiences, but I think a lot of this as could be passed down generation to generation, not just in books, although the article seems to promote books over certainly cell phones or smartphones or computer reading, particularly smartphones, blue screen, etc., etc., for reading comprehension, which is, again, all part of data storage, is all part of putting it in there so that you can, at some point in the future, 
bring it back up to recall or memory and be able to use it in a significant way to stay out of trouble, to avoid trouble, and it becomes somewhat defining. Your experiences become somewhat part of your identity. But in that same sort of a way, if you want to shape your identity, if you want to use the formal operations, the abstract thinking, the ability to problem solve, use imagination, change course, take on a new project, be creative. That's the stuff of creativity. That's the material stuff of moving around. <laughs> Changing things up, which is really the stuff of psychotherapy, <laughs> psychological counseling, as much as it is growth and development. It's much more adaptive for you to do it in your brain before you actually go out and do it, one. And secondly, if you're so busy just surviving, you may not get a chance, time, to take a breath, to go into some repose, to not just rely on sleep, which again, my point earlier was it could even be compromised by too much stress. Your sleep starts to get disrupted. You may not go through the stages. You can try to will yourself through the stages, but unfortunately that's counterproductive because you're thinking too much. But we need to remain somewhat calibrated and we need to realize, I think, <laughs> opinion sounds pretty confident, don't I? I sound pretty confident in that. I, don't, I think it's inarguable. You can't argue against it. We need to be able to at least realize we can only take in so much data and if there is a limit to it, as within becoming somewhat of a liability, it's when you take in so much or you cross that line you exceed the limit. <laughs> you can't process it. You can't learn from it. It starts to compromise your sense of who you are. And you can say, well, that's great because I can be something new every day. Try that. I can go somewhere new every day. Try that. Even in those individuals that seem to be wanderers, sojourners, uh, vagabonds, or see life in that dimension, you take yourself with you. And that's the whole idea of self, is it's stabilizing. There's always a place that you can come back to. Wherever you lay your head is really your bed. But it's yours. And we all need that independence, agency, and autonomy in the event that we should get into a circumstance or situation where we're maybe being pulled into something that isn't healthy or meeting someone on the front end that appears incredibly charismatic, interesting, captures our attention, excites us, maybe a little edgy, maybe a bit of threat, but as you get to know them, you find out, wait a minute, this is probably not the person I want to hang out with and maybe I need to set a new course. Well, you got to figure out who you are compared to them. All relationships are predicated upon two parts, functioning. It's just the nature of nature. But book readers, in the same spirit, took more breaths for the article. Or maybe not more breaths, more deep breaths. There is a bit of pacing. There is still that prefrontal activity, as the article points out, where there's the shallowness of of breath and excitability, the signs or evidences. This is exciting. It's got my interest. I'm actually wanting to read it. I'm actually wanting to, smartphone, computer, experience, see it. It's multi, <laughs> multimedia when it comes to computers. Books have pictures too, though. So. But when we took deeper breaths, 
it's almost like allowing all that data to be digested. <sighs> Sighing. It's a reset. The article points out that it actually has already been established. That sighing improves cognitive function. And it decreases the load on the prefrontal. <sighs> Deep breath, sighing. Gives you a chance to think about everything that you've taken in. Consolidate it, as I mentioned earlier. Put it together. See if it fits. See if it makes sense. Choose whether you want that to fit or you don't want that to fit into who you are. Legacy as well as prophecy, projection. What you want to be in the future? Forecasting. Not that there aren't perils in that. You just have to stay current with the data. And once again, the messaging here is the body is naturally calibrated but we're changing our world. Our world is changing. Who else would be changing it? Probably us. It seems exciting. It's all charismatic. <laughs> Looks good. Could be better. Could be different. It's not small town stuff. We're all digesting the trend, or at least taking in, maybe not fully digesting, but taking in the trends and left to digest them concurrently. We've not only got similar experiences now, but we can do it in real time. Again, what took, as I mentioned at the earlier segment, in the earlier segment, the intro of our podcast today, what might have taken days and weeks, maybe months, even years to get around to for everybody to experience it, now everybody experience it, experiences it within moments, minutes even. It's a lot of data to take in. Can we adapt? Can we calibrate, recalibrate the human apparatus? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, but obviously the demand is there. But as much as, again, we focus on the breathing, we give the brain maybe chance to do full operation, engage full operation. As much as we take moments of repose, much as we pace it during the day, I think that's the whole idea of diaphragmatic breathing. I mean, there's, a, again, an autonomic. <laughs> I know autonomic isn't really necessarily conditioned. I, I said that somewhat hesitantly earlier. But it can almost start to feel autonomic or automatic, even if it's conditioned. And it's sometimes very difficult to figure those two things out, but for the sake of the podcast today, I wanted to say it that way, even earlier at that risk of misrepresenting a bit, because we want this to become almost nature. The old adage was second nature. I, I think maybe it is nature. Maybe we're just cooperating or maybe if we choose not to cooperate with the programming, the more organic programming, the more natural sort of dimensions of that, the true autonomic responses, we've got to understand it's going to cause some disruption. How serious or significant? I don't know. Again, that's the whole point. We don't know yet, but it seems like it's a lot of overload and demand. And 
Learning how to pace it, pause, mention diaphragmatic breathing, which is just a deep breathing exercise. You could add imagery to it, meditation, all those things in and of themselves. Meditation may be more so guided, directed, directive, but all that offers the body a chance to disengage. Do we want to retreat the fantasies? No. You can do that even with this whole kind of discussion about prefrontal activity or smartphones. I mean, you can use that as an escape. And maybe that's like doubling down on your disruptions, <laughs> your difficulties. But nobody needs to escape reality. We need to recognize at least for the time being, we don't live in a virtual world. And for me, throwback. Somebody who's an old timer, say, say uh, I don't know that I want to get rid of that. Maybe it is all nostalgia. Maybe it is all in that same way that when you get to the point, you look back on your life, and particularly your childhood, if it's been a Anyway, remotely positive, you, you tend to, or even if there's just a few positives, you can tend to embellish them a bit more than they actually are. You can look at them through so-called rose-colored glasses, those experiences, those people, the moments. But I don't know that it's fantasy. <laughs> I don't know that it's only making me want to make me feel better. I don't know that that in and of itself could be escapism. I just need to realize, though, there may have been something positive about that. I'll own it, put I statements in front of it, but I'm also encouraging you to think about that. Simple does not necessarily have to mean bad, but even things that seem incredibly complex have to be somewhat, at times, simplified. And the simple message, once more here, is if you can't perform adequately as in full picture, full operations. The basic sort of operational, emotive, emotional processing as well as higher cognitive processing of data, especially data that is all part of becoming who you are or contributing to the constant sort of refinement of your identity and really is the place that, as we've discussed today, gives you autonomy or independence or true agency to make changes not based on what somebody else says or what you're conditioned to or even what your human apparatus may be somewhat inclined to autonomically be. You need to slow down. Put the brakes on. That's why in psychological counseling, we use these techniques, these interventions. And with that, that's how we come to a point, hopefully, because of that, if the person can commit themselves to that, we come to a place where they then can generalize that from the opportunities to sit down and talk with someone like me, to talking to themselves, to talking with others outside of the more professional sort of context. And that would be 
in line, I believe, with what we think is proper balance, not to be overloaded, proper appreciation for rest, <laughs> proper engagement of parasympathetic operations, proper turning off of norepinephrine and adrenaline, proper understanding contextually of triggers or what either conditioned or again autonomically, overstimulation, what taking in all that data that's, that computers and cell phones and smartphones give us an opportunity to, to take in, how maybe we need to think about it <laughs> a bit more. Uh, as one would come see me, think about your situation circumstance. Slow it down. Unpack it. Emotionally debrief. Cognitively debrief, process, problem solve. Use every bit of brain capacity and capability, including memory, the ability to store data and retrieve it and use it, especially if you've determined it's got some validity and reliability attached to it. It really is true. It's empirically sound. But if we do that, then it should help you. You should start to be able to think more clearly. You sh should find answers, or at least have access to answers. You might come to a conclusion, I need to limit my data input, wherever it's coming from, multimedia, whatever medium. Whatever way I'm taking it in. Sensory overload. Sensory integration issues. I mean, these are all things that we can be facilitative. But if we just tend to go with the flow and it's all moving further and faster than we intended and gaining momentum and there's just a lot more mass now. <laughs> Size, volume, vector and valence would say... Who's going to slow it down? Who's going to stop it? And when do you get to the point of supernova <laughs> or burnout? And I think we're kind of there. Now, does that mean that it's all going to come crashing down? Probably not, but things may have to be paused or stopped. And the reset's going to be difficult. Maybe that's what we're going through now. Maybe all this was pandemics and shutdowns has established for us we were moving too fast too far too soon and we just needed to catch up I don't know <laughs> it's, we have to wait to see and that's more cultural and more sociological and certainly beyond any individual singular individual's reach but your world is a microcosm of that your community is smaller version of that. Work with what you got. I've said this in previous podcasts. If we all do it individually, why would we think we wouldn't in mass then one day all get on the same page if it really is real, if it is really true, if it's genuinely adaptive? Less some minor variants. Not every place is exactly the same. Not every situation is the same, but the common human experience, it can be good. It can be adaptive if we go about it in the right sort of way.
when we get feedback that suggests that maybe we're going about it in the wrong way or maybe we're pushing it out of some sort of motive that's either intentionally or maybe just not yet fully realized, the person doesn't understand why they're doing it that way, maybe we should just slow down. Maybe it's, again, looking at that circumstance and saying, hmm, this looks like really interesting. Let me go there. And then it takes you immediately over here. And before you know it, you're just in this frenzy. And you've spent hours, (laughs) maybe days, months, weeks, years, on a smartphone or living your life virtually. And what have you got for it? You can't really even be able to recall it in that way that the article describes it. Comprehension is worse. Now, will reading a book change that? No, but reading a book is kind of different in that you have to slow down. And you have to see it in that way. A different sort of way. Because there's a bit of pacing that goes with it. And if you could do that, then reading gives you a chance to maybe even go back before the next thing hits you or keeps you in a singular sort of lens or focus long enough to take something in. No wonder you can recall it better. That's why I would hope when people leave the counseling experience, whether it's, again, the individual sessions or the overall sum of all the sessions or the intervention, that they leave with something. Not only maybe something real simple as in deep breath, (laughs) diaphragmatic breathing, meditation, some sort of uh, way of changing your thought patterns, mindfulness, spiritual practices, whatever it is, but also that it helps the individual or individuals involved in the way of consolidating or putting together even more so what they want to be and who they want to be and what they have been and helps them develop not only some sort of stabilization, uh, a a point, touchstone of stabilization, but maybe it's continuity. Maybe it's being able to continue to see the beginning and the end even if there's going to be demand for change along the way. But it's your life. It's your story. Agency, independence, autonomy, choice is the highest order of human function. It should be all of our experience, everyone. And that's why I believe, in principle, why freedom to choose is so paramount, tatamount. Nobody should be able to tell somebody else what to do, but if we're all doing it well, or if you're going to tell somebody what to do, show them the highest order of thought, teach them that. If it is truly the highest order of thought, if it's organically based, if it's implicitly there, if it's part of evolution and the adaptation of the human species, if it proves itself to be part of why we've survived as a species, then It's got to be good. And if it's calibrated to reality, (laughs) it's got to be truth. (sighs) Deep sigh. Consolidate all this. But that, again, is why we bring you the podcast and why I enjoy it so much. And would like to invite you back to our next edition of Word with Dave Clay.
And in the meantime, should you have any questions, comments, please communicate. <laughs> I'd be glad to field them. Uh, I'd be glad to appreciate very much the chance to help you find the help you need, whomever it might be. But in the meantime, once again, you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. And <laughs> as always, wishing you not only good health, but good mental health. <laughs>